Well, hi, everybody. Welcome to Recovery Jam. My name is Melissa C. I'm a recovered compulsive overeater. I live in New York, and um, it's a pleasure to be here tonight. Um, so the, the topic that I'm going to be talking about is step 12, specifically out of the um, AA 12 and 12. And um, it was a few weeks ago, actually, I got like interrupted and, um, you know, wasn't able to, you know, follow through and finish it through. But I wanted to, you know, go back into it tonight. Um, so there's really, there's three parts to this step. There's the having had a spiritual awakening, right? So step, the part one of, of the 12 step is you have to have had a spiritual awakening. Right. And we talked about last time just what that means, what it is. Um, and two, carrying the message to other addicts. And three, practicing these principles in all our affairs. And, um, you know, I, I think right from the start, if, if anybody is just starting out and they're new, this might sound like a long way off, but it's not. You know, and it's not, and step 12 is not reserved for the elite few. It's not the leadership step. It's actually the step of everybody um, because this program is a 12-step program. It's not an 11-step program. So if you are going to be a practitioner of the 12 steps, you're going to practice the 12th step as well. And that was something that um, confused me early on. I thought it was just a handful of the leaders, you know, the leaders would be doing 12 step work and the majority of us would just be, you know, I don't know, the congregants, you know, the participants, but that's not the way that this works. It's anybody that's had a spiritual awakening is then qualified and not just qualified, must, it's not optional, must actually do this work in order to have immunity, right? In order to, to no longer be a slave to this disease, the 12 step work is mandatory. So the last time we talked about the spiritual awakening and now, you know, and we began to discuss what, what it looks like when we carry the message to other addicts, to other compulsive eaters. And, um, and so we had left off, we were on page 111. And this is again in the AA 12 and 12. Um, and, and it highlights some difficulties and growing pains that people encounter when they're doing 12 step work. You know, and so um, the first one, it says, we may set our hearts on getting a particular person sobered up. And after doing all we can for months, we see him relapse. Perhaps this will happen in succession of cases and we may be deeply discouraged as to our ability to carry the message. And I think everyone who's ever sponsored has had this difficulty, that you see people get well and it seems like they're fine now, they've recovered. Um, and it's heartbreaking, you know, because we do form relationships with people. We, you know, we grow to love sponsees. I, I feel, I do. I feel like these become my sisters in this program and I want to see them continue to get well. 
And it's heartbreaking when you see people relapse and walk away from the program, you know, and we can get discouraged by that. But I think I always have a choice. And my choice is um, to turn my thoughts resolutely to those that return, you know, because for every person that goes out and like breaks our heart when they leave, many of them return. And I have thankfully had many experiences with people who you're like, oh, are they ever going to get it? They just keep leaving and picking up and leaving and picking up. And then, you know, God and his incredible miraculous power, those people come back and many of them I've seen now have sustained recovery. And, and actually when they do return, they have a wealth of experiences that make them now uniquely useful to those that relapse. You know, that is, that is unfortunately not a part of the recovery process, but it is characteristic of the suffering of the disease. Um, so I like to talk about the ones who return. I think that's an important aspect. Um, and for myself, when I feel discouraged by those that go out, um, you know, we're told in the, in the big book that um, we offer them friendship, fellowship. You know, we let people know, I, I like to think about it like this, the porch light is on and my welcome mat is out if ever they decide to make the decision to come back in again. And when I haven't heard from someone or seen someone in a long time, um, sometimes they pop into my head this, you know, in the morning when I'm doing quiet time and prayer and meditation. And when that happens, I make sure that I reach out and just send them a, a friendly text. You know, I'm thinking of you, you know, you're in my heart today. And I would suggest that any one of us can do that. In fact, you don't need to be through all 12 steps to do that. If you've been, you know, a participant in a meeting and you noticed someone's absence, by all means, you can always reach out to that person and let them know that they're on your mind, right? Doesn't mean we're hunting them, at, them down, but simply letting people know that they're still thought of, I think is, is, is well within the spirit of 12 step work. Um, but another difficulty that we can encounter here it says, we may encounter the reverse situation in which we are highly elated because we seem to have been successful. Here the temptation is to become rather possessive of the newcomers. So, you know, we start thinking of people as our projects, that their success is somehow tied up in us and our own success as well. And we start thinking, you know, that we can counsel them in all areas of their lives, you know, in all scopes. And maybe it's well-intended perhaps, but I think it's good that we remember um, that sponsees are not our children. A sponsee mm -hmm. is not my child, they're adults. They're adults who like us, have experiences and perspectives. And we can make suggestions, but should consistently remind them to go to God for the answers, right? It's very flattering. Sometimes you get asked for advice in all sorts of areas that really don't have, I don't have any experience in. And, 
you know, my ego can get wrapped up in that thinking that I'm an expert in areas that I really am not an expert in. Um, and it's not good for either parties. It's not good for the sponsor to start doling out advice on subjects that they don't have any, you know, qualification to be counseling on. And it's not good for the sponsee as well. Because ultimately our job as sponsors is to help the sufferer get connected with God. And I like to think God is the one that's got all the answers. That's the true source, right? Um, you know, another problem is that we may carry the message to so many that we're placed in a position of trust and we're presented with the temptation to overmanage things. And sometimes this causes rebuffs and other consequences, which are hard to take. And I, I can definitely fall in this category. I'm, um, you know, I like to be in control. I like to have my hand on every wheel. I like to be a part, you know, um, some of that's what, like some of that's a good thing. I think God can take those characteristics and use them for good, but I'm a human and I can also use them for bad, right? I can also use them for my own ego. And, um, you know, and I think in, in Overeaters Anonymous, this is sometimes where the traditions can help us as well you know, um, and also having recovery partners, people who can say to you, ease up a little bit. I think you're trying to control too many things. I think you've got your nose perhaps in too many areas. And, um, you know, and what happens is people, you know, can respond to certain things that we share. I've had that experience myself where people respond to certain things and that Sometimes the responses have been critical and it feels like a snub. When, I'm, when, when you've shared, when you've done a lot of speaking and, and that's part of 12-step work too. And you, you, you coin a particular phrase, you say it a particular way and it gets repeated. The ego can get lit up. And then someone else comes along and says, yeah, that's not in the book or I don't agree with that or, or puts their own spin on it. And, you know, we're sensitive people. We can, we can take it as an insult and get, and feel like a snow. And I think for myself, um, you know, I have to remember that not everybody's going to be pleased by every single word I say, right? And that's not really my job is to, is to, you know, spin things so that the whole world is pleased with every word I say. My, um, and I think it's a good opportunity for me to examine my motives. What are my motives? Is it to be useful or is it to be a superstar? <laughs> is it to be helpful or is it to have, you know, a little fame and notoriety? Um, and if I'm trying to be useful and helpful, that's a clear, pure motive. But if I'm seeking approval, that's a difficulty. And I think, you know, I may I always remember that my integrity is more important than my reputation, that the approval of other people cannot be my God. It cannot be what I worship, but it has to be what I believe is the truth as God would have me share. 
Um, and so these are the difficulties and they're described as only the pains of growing up and nothing but good can come from them if we turned more and more to the entire 12 steps for the answer. So the 12 steps teach me how to actually practice step 12. I think that's beautiful. Like, and, and you know, it's like all the steps that I took beforehand is my training for how I'm now gonna help other people. It always, I think the answers are always found in the actual steps themselves for me. You know, so one, you know, if I think about the 12 steps, how do they teach me this? One, I'm powerless over others' recovery. If I'm powerless over my difficulty, if I'm powerless over my addiction, I am certainly powerless over everybody else's. And I'm powerless over their recovery as well. Two, believe that God is the only one who can restore anyone that I work with. Anybody we work with is only getting restored, is only getting recovered through the power of God, not through the power of their sponsor. And I think it's a good thing that, um, you know, think about it like step three. I not only turn my will and my life over to the care of God, I put my fellows in God's hands too. That's where sponsees are best as well. We lay them, we put them in God's hands. You know, and the next, you know, now the next 14 pages of the 12, of step 12 in the AA 12 and 12, is all about the third part of step 12, which is huge. This is, this is the practicing these principles in all our affairs. Um, and, you know, when people begin their 12-step journey, I, I, one of the first questions I ask people is, are you willing to go to any length, right? Do you want this? Are you willing to go to any length? And are you willing to seek spiritual principles? Are you willing to live by spiritual principles? And because that's, that's, that's the way that we're going to be living our lives. So having had a spiritual awakening, now I'm going to practice these spiritual principles in all my affairs, in all areas of my life. So what are these affairs then? When they talk about these affairs, what do they mean? One, family. It says here, can we bring the same spirit of love and tolerance into our sometimes deranged family lives that we bring into our AA group? Can we have the same kind of confidence and faith in these people who have been infected and sometimes crippled by our illness that we have in our sponsors. Um, I read that and I'm like, what? <laughs> you know, and I found that um, it's easier to cut fellows some slack than it is to do the same with my own family. It's harder the hardest place for me to practice 
the 12th step is in my family. You know, um, and, and we're told here that for our families, we are told to have love, tolerance, confidence, and faith. So I'm actually supposed to have faith in my family. I'm supposed to believe in the, in, in the best form of them. I'm supposed to give them the benefit of the doubt when all at all possible. If presented with two scenarios for my family, one is to believe that they're going to screw up again and mess up and do it wrong. And the other one is to believe that it's all going to come out right. I'm supposed to have faith that it's going to come out right with them. Um, you know, and I found that as I demonstrate that faith, people rise to the occasion. They do. People begin, they become what we expect of them. They become more inclined to do good when our eye is on expecting to see the good in them, when we look to find the good in them. You know, and I think about it like this, um, it's rather than have a critical eye on the way that they do things, it's to look at the bright side of them. I think this is where having gratitude, practicing intensive gratitude with family members really pays off here because it shows that I have faith in them as well. Okay, so now my job. Okay, the other affair is my job. Can we actually carry the AA spirit into our daily work? Meaning, can we constantly think of others in our workplace, in our occupations as well? And three, to the world at large, can we meet our newly recognized responsibilities to the world at large? What are, what are our new responsibilities? It talks about our new responsibilities. Well, the responsibility to live in agreement with God's will and to demonstrate that we have been restored to happy and productive lives. And with this as our mission, we can contribute and not just take. And that's what we can bring to the workplace as well, to the world at large as well, that we can be contributors and not just like takers. And four, the religion that we choose. Here it mentions that we can bring new purpose and devotion to the religion of our choice. Can we bring new purpose and new devotion to our religion? And we know, you know, that life is made up of times where we experience failure as well as success. Can we experience failure without despair? Can we have achievement without growing prideful? And page 112 explains how it is that we can actually fall short. Our troubles first begin with indifference. We are sober and happy in our, um, in our AA work and things go well at home and the office. We naturally congratulate ourselves we pat ourselves on the back, and later it proves to be far too easy and superficial a point of view. We temporarily cease to grow. 
because we feel satisfied that there's no need for all of those steps for us. We were doing just fine on a few of them. And in slang, you know, they, they call that just doing the first step and the 12 step. Because sometimes what happens is people, oh yes, I'm powerless. You know, I took, I took step one. You know, I, I, I've surrendered my food. I'm following my food plan. You know, I can do all that. And now I'm carrying the message, right? And they call that two-stepping. And, um, and it, it says here that it can go on for years. Um, and, you know, that has not been, I haven't witnessed it in people being able to do that for years. I think for a short period of time. Um, and what happens is that we feel like life is dull and that we're disappointed by our regular small lives. And this is really dangerous. You know, I would say if you're wondering if you're heading in that direction, you can ask yourself if you're being consistent with your nightly review. Are you looking to grow spiritually? Are you doing the bare minimum? Are you really increasing your prayer life? Are you intensively working with newcomers or just skating along with your recovered sponsees, just checking in every now and then? You know, this, it does not talk about checking in with recovered people. It talks about intensive work. So if you're doing the bare minimum, you know, the great danger is that our disease is progressive. This is a progressive disease and coasting will not outrun the avalanche that will eventually come. And, that's, and we're warned of that. Um, because eventually we all get a big catastrophe. That's what it, that's what it says here. In page 113, what then? Have we alcoholics um, and it got, or can we get the resources to meet these calamities which come to so many? Can we transform these calamities into assets, sources of growth and comfort to ourselves and to those about us? Well, we surely have a chance if we switch from two-stepping to 12-stepping. You know, so every single person at some point in life is going to experience catastrophe and hardship. It's part of the human experience that some, it, and they're, we're kind of told, you know, if, if um, nothing difficult is happening for you right now, don't worry, it's coming. Like it's, it's sort of just the way of life. You know, it's, it's, we experience the death of people we love if we're lucky and we live, right? It, it means that we have people that we love and that these things will happen. Many of us been around long enough, people lose their jobs. People lose their, you know, their, their, their homes. People lose, people have sickness, people, lots of things. Um, and that, our basic troubles, it says on page 114, are the same as everyone else's, right? Just because you've gone through the 12 steps does not mean that you're not gonna have it. You know, we talk about the fourth dimension of life. That does not mean that you never experience what it means to be human. 
Our basic troubles are the same as everyone else's, but when an honest effort is made to practice these principles in all our affairs, well-grounded AAs seem to have the ability by God's grace to take these troubles in stride and turn them into demonstrations of faith. And I have witnessed it in dear friends and fellows who have experienced, I have sponsees who have experienced seeming tragedies one after the other, hardships, death, sickness, life's tough spots. And they, and they haven't succumbed to the food. You know, just because you've experienced hardship does not mean that you, that you have to eat. Those two things are not necessarily related if you are a practitioner of all of the steps, if you're truly practicing all of these spiritual principles. Um, you know, I've experienced myself life's difficulties, issues with my kids, you know, my mom, I've had difficulties with my job. Um, you know, uh, many of us with, with like the pandemic, right? I mean, that, that this, this pandemic that we experienced, um, normal people who did not have a 12-step program, I saw them really struggling. A lot of people I worked with were having tremendous difficulties, family members, they were really feeling isolated and alienated and alone. And, and, and you know, um, normal people gained a ton of weight <laughs> during COVID, marriages broke up, lots of things happened. And yet I also witnessed people in recovery, somehow their own recovery got stronger. Their fellowships seemed to have grown, you know, um, I know for myself, when I have experienced some real difficulties with my daughter a number of years ago, um, I started working even more intensively with others. I don't know how, but God gave me these pockets of time and my faith was strengthened and my recovery grew stronger. My relationship with God got stronger. Um, the principles that we learn in this program allow us to somehow go through these times with optimism, serenity, faith, and purpose. It really makes me think about one of the promises of a spiritual awakening that's found in the big book in the chapter, Working with Others. It's on page 100. It says, follow the dictates of a higher power and you will presently live in a new and wonderful world no matter what your present circumstances. It's like we don't quite live with the same responses to hard circumstances anymore. You know, I think about it like here on the earthly plane, you would think hard circumstances would mean that we're suffering, but somehow having a spiritual awakening in the fourth dimension, it's like we kind of rise above experiencing hardships like, like regular humans do. You know, I can somehow um, feel sad about a circumstance, but not be enveloped in despair. And I think there's a difference between grieving, you know, feeling grief and feeling sadness 
and feeling self-pity and despair. They are two different things. You know, grief allows others to comfort me. Grief allows me to draw nearer to other people. Self-pity and despair have me push others away. It starts, I know for myself when I'm living in self-pity, what happens is I start having excuses for behaving in ways that are actually outside of my own spiritual principles. And that's, that's the difficulty with self-pity. I start behaving in ways that I know are not right for me, but I say, well, I'm entitled because I'm really sad right now. Whereas I think grief doesn't do the same thing. I think grief is admitting that what I'm feeling is sad, what I'm feeling is difficult, but that I wanna draw nearer to God and my fellows, and that I'm seeking direction and counsel. You know, so we can take our big lumps as they come, but more difficult are sometimes the lesser problems, the pebbles in our shoes kind of problems. Those are difficult for us. We often discover a greater challenge in the lesser and more continuous problems of life. Our answer is in still more spiritual development. So more spiritual development when problems are difficult. And guess what? More spiritual development when problems seem like they're worldly, not a big deal. Um, you know, even my seemingly minor problems have the potential to do great a deal of harm if I don't look at them and use them to grow. And how often do we ignore an issue? You know, for years I would say, um, I had two modes. I had two ways that I lived, denial or obsession. I would ignore and deny that something was happening until it grew so big that I could no longer close my eyes to it. And then it was the only thing I could see and the only thing I could think about. And I think about it like this, um, it's kind of like I have a little cut and I just ignore it. I don't wash it out. I don't put any antiseptic in it. I, I just, you know, and I just keep dinging it. I just keep dinging it and it grows bigger and bigger and bigger until it's throbbing and infected, right? And so even my minor issues, I'm still to take them. If it's a minor issue and it's causing me discomfort, um, I still take them through the 10th step. I examine them, I look at them. And if I don't, then what happens is they attach themselves for me. If I ignore them, they attach themselves to other small issues, like little, like little magnets getting drawn together. They catch, they catch, they catch, they catch, and then it grows into something huge and overwhelming. Now we're gonna talk about our instincts. And this is on page 114. It says, as we grow spiritually, we find that our old attitudes towards our instincts need to undergo drastic revisions. Our desires for emotional security and wealth, for personal prestige and power, for romance and family satisfactions, all these have to be tempered and redirected 
we have learned that the satisfaction of instincts cannot be the sole end and aim of our lives. If we place instincts first, we've got the cart before the horse. We shall be pulled backward into disillusions. But when we are willing to place spiritual growth first, then and only then do we have a real chance. So it talks about tempered, that our, that our desires need to be tempered. And if something is tempered, it means that it's improved, you know, that the elasticity of it is improved. That's what, that's what happens with tempered glass. It gets heated and cooled and it, and it improves. It's more resilient. It doesn't shatter so easily. You know, my instincts cannot own me. We are often so incredibly concerned with our desires. You know, our desire for emotional security, the ability to feel happy and satisfied and steady for monetary security, that desire to feel secure at all moments and knowing that I've got enough at all moments of the day for romantic security, right? I gotta feel secure at all times about my romance. Prestige and power. If these are tempered, it means that I have to ride the storms of not having every one of my needs met and exceeded by all people at all times. You know, and, and so for me, there's like this, this social need, you know, of, of wanting to belong. It's like, here's like an example for me of this like instinct. It's an instinct, by the way, to belong. That is a human instinct. It's part of our survival. But, um, but if I want to belong at all costs, then sometimes, you know, and I live that way, then I would want to belong in places where I have no business being. Right. If that becomes the satisfaction, becomes the focus of me at all times, then I find myself needing to belong in places where perhaps people are not making good choices. Right. And so I need to be tempered in that area to feel the discomfort of perhaps not belonging in every setting. And I've had that happen where I find myself in the midst of a conversation where people are talking about things that are no longer part of my ideals, whether they're talking bad about someone or gossiping or just general commiserating, bringing you know, a certain spirit to the environment. Um, I have to run the risk of not belonging in those settings. And it's difficult, but I feel more resilient. I feel like, okay, I don't have to belong here. I can deal with perhaps not everybody liking me in that situation, you know, or thinking I'm so great in that situation, writing it out, feeling okay, you know, feeling God close within me um, and moving along. You know, um, page 115, it says, after we came into OAA, we go on growing our attitudes and actions towards security, emotional security and financial security commenced to change profoundly. We change the way we hunger for status, either the status of belonging with the right people 
or having money. Our demand for emotional security for our own way had constantly thrown us into unworkable relations with other people. Though we were sometimes quite unconscious of this, the result had always been the same. Either we had tried to play God and dominate those about us, or we had insisted on being over-dependent upon them. You know, and so it's common that we have the habit where we place unrealistic demands on people. And I make their behavior, their success, their affections, my God. Those things become super important to me. And when I say that they're really important to me, you know, like the way that I view it is like, those things become my God. They become what I worship. And if my very happiness and my sense of security is riding on the backs of how others behave, then now I might not be in bondage to food, but I'm in bondage to others. And this program promises me freedom, spiritual freedom. I don't want to be in bondage to other people, right? You know, the bottom of the page says we had refused to learn the very hard lesson that over-dependence upon people is unsuccessful because all people are fallible and even the best of them will somehow let us down, will sometimes let us down. So people will absolutely let us down at some point because they're people, they're human. If I spend my life dependent on people and I make their actions, their thoughts and their affections my focus, then I am shooting for a moving target, right? I'm placing my happiness. I'm constantly seeking it. This target is going to move. So what's the solution, right? What is my solution to be? Well, page 116 says, we would need to give constantly of ourselves without demands for repayment. And when we persistently did this, we gradually found that people were attracted to us as never before. And even if they failed us, we could be understanding and not too seriously affected. And to me, this is what it means to be tolerant. I'm not so sensitive to the behaviors and attitudes of other people. You know, how is it that we're not so seriously affected? Why is that? That other people, and it does not mean that my feelings don't get hurt or I get affected, but I, but my bounce back, I get, you know, we talk about this idea about emotional sobriety. That's what they mean by emotional sobriety, that I can get knocked off course for a moment, but that I can find my balance again. And page 116, the middle of the page answers this, because we rely on the best possible source of emotional stability, which is in God himself. That's where my emotional stability comes on. If we really depended upon God, we couldn't very well play God to our fellows, nor would we feel the urge to fully rely on human protection and care. These were the new attitudes that finally brought many of us inner strength and peace that could not, that could not be deeply shaken by the shortcomings of others or by any calamity not of our own making. 
And so what really gives me emotional sobriety, what gives me that sense of stability is that I let people off the hook now because my true source is in this spiritual awakening, is in this relationship with God, which never lets me down, which is always available, always there for me, no matter what. And step 12, you know, also talks about our marriages and how many of us find that these steps fixes the damages and that our homes are happy. Because page 117, it says this, by eliminating the severe emotional twists that have so often stemmed from alcoholism. Oh, then I get you. Not alcohol, but actually the ism, the natures. We are severely emotional, but when we straighten out spiritually, we also straighten out emotionally. And then we become better partners. Let's be clear that this is not an overnight affair, but it is the work of our lifetime. You can ask my husband. I am not perfect in this by any means. I can fall off course, but again, my bounce back is quicker because as much as I love my husband, as good as our marriage is, he is not my source either. He is not responsible for my happiness. He's not responsible for keeping me on course. That ultimately is always on my relationship with God. And maintaining that relationship is my responsibility. Page 118 questions. We may become so wrapped up in AA or OA and new friends that we are inconsiderately away from home more than when we drank or ate. When we see them um, and happy, we recommend the 12 steps to our families and try to teach them how to live. And, and that's arrogant and certainly something that I have been guilty of. Um, we're reminded on page 119 that realizing that our partners have endured and now fully understand how much we did to damage them and our children, we nearly always take up our marriage responsibilities with a willingness to repair what we can and to accept what we can't. Sounds like the serenity prayer. I can fix what I can and accept what I can't. Um, you know, and I think that we begin to behave like a partner instead of like children. And that's what we can offer to the marriage. You know, and when I look sometimes back at the tantrums that I've thrown in the past, and I used to throw tantrums all the time, or have this pouty face on when I didn't get my way, or sometimes even outright refusal to do my fair share, it's clear that in recovery, I have a lot of growing up to do. And that's been one of the gifts that I've been able to bring to my marriage, to my family, to, um, to say, you know what, if I'm going to fall on one side or the other, I'll fall on the side of perhaps doing more than my fair share because I have a lifetime to make up for, right? So when I come downstairs and the dishes are full of, the sink is full of dishes in them, um, I may have to fight with myself to say this isn't fair, but I'm only concerned with fairness when it seems to not be in my favor. 
When it was in my favor, I never questioned fairness. Um, you know, so I think it's, you know, there's a lot in this particular chapter. It talks about money, it talks about family, um, you know, and I think that um, this is where we really practice it for the rest of our lives. That when people say, you know, that they're through the steps, we never are really through the steps. You know, that we're going to practice this for our lifetime. Um, Page 124, it, it, it ends, I, I like this part. It says, still more wonderful is the feeling that we do not have to be specially distinguished among our fellows in order to be useful and profoundly happy. Um, you know, service gladly rendered, obligations squarely met, troubles well accepted or solved with God's help. The knowledge that at home or in the world outside, we are partners in a common effort. The well understood fact that in God's sight, all human beings are important. The proof that love freely given surely brings a full return. The certainty that we are no longer isolated and alone in self-constructed prisons. The surety that we need no longer be square pegs in round holes, but can fit and belong in God's scheme of things. These are permanent and legitimate satisfactions of right living. And I love that because many of us came here, myself included, with this feeling, and I've had it since I was a little girl, that I somehow didn't fit. You know, even in the midst of a family that loved me, I felt different, like I was, didn't belong, that something was amiss in me. And yet the practice of these 12 steps changed me. I don't feel that way anymore. Same people, same circumstances, same everything, but I don't feel like the peg that doesn't fit in. And I think it's because I'm less concerned about my comfort and how I fit and more concerned with perhaps how others are feeling. Do others feel at ease? I think, you know, in, in the St. Francis prayer, it talks about that we find ourselves when we forget ourselves. I'm gonna paraphrase that. When I'm less concerned about my comfort and where I fit and more concerned about how others feel, and where they fit and making them comfortable, I find my true purpose. And, um, and that if I have a desire today to live usefully and walk humbly under the grace of God. And with that, I will.